Hi everyone, welcome to a brand new episode of the Behold Podcast on the Genre Equality channel. I'm Hitzer. I'm Isa. Uh, this episode, we're going to be talking about a streaming service that is, you know, owned by the richest man alive. <laughs> the richest man that has ever been alive, Jeff Bezos. But yet, weirdly enough, doesn't have like the reach and the popularity and the pull of a Netflix or of a Disney Plus. Yeah. Uh, we'll be talking about the streaming service, Amazon Prime Video specifically. Um, I gotta, I gotta say, like straight off of the bat, right? We've talked a lot about Amazon Prime shows, yep. and I think the reason is because Amazon Prime has a greater hit ratio than most other streaming services. It mm. may not put out the five hundred shows a week that Netflix does. It may not have the IP that Disney Plus does. You oh, know, yeah. um, but I think like pound for pound, show for show. There's almost never a miss with Amazon Prime, and I fucking love the service. So we'll be talking a lot about some of the underrated shows that we haven't highlighted before here on either Genre Equality or Behold. I mean, if you listen to Genre Equality, you know that we've talked about The Boys quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very popular show. It's a hit show. We've talked about Undone, me in particular. Um, yeah. I remember giving <laughs> Undone a 10 out of 10 review um, a few years back. Um, plus, we have an entire episode sort of dedicated to Fleabag as well. Um, what else am I missing for Amazon Prime that we, that we've talked about? Um, they've rescued a couple of shows with the, the expense. Ex- yeah, with the expense. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we praise the expense like every year. Like, and the most recent <laughs> season was the most two recent seasons were on Amazon Prime, which I feel were were some of the best seasons so far, at least visually. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, Amazon Prime op- occupies this very interesting space at the moment, right? Uh, not only yeah. for rescuing kind of like <laughs> uh, abandoned hits. Um. Yeah. But also, like, in the superhero category, they've got a very fascinating kind of uh, uh, take on the superhero genre with the boys, of course, as we talked about, and Invincible as well. Invincible, another big hit for, for, the, for the streaming service, you know, and that show is clearly, you know, um, getting a lot of buzz these days. Uh, some of the buzz is from me as well. I really, really love the show. Yeah. Um, Steven Yen, uh, once again, having a, a big ass here uh, mm-hmm. with Invincible, you know, uh, J.K. Simmons is on that. So really, really cool. So yeah, like I said, like so many huge hits or so many good shows and not all of them hits, but so many good shows coming out of Amazon Prime. And we're here to highlight... Um, three of the quote-unquote smaller ones, they may have a lot of critical recognition, yeah. but not a lot of like popular viewership. Um, mm. But before we get into those shows, you know, I, I would like to take a couple of moments uh, to remember the life and career of one Michael Kenneth Williams, um, most, popularly, most popularly known as um, Omar Little mm-hmm. from The Wire. Um, if you want to listen to our episode about The Wire, we talked a lot about Omar as well. You can listen to that on Behold, you know. Um, the man tragically passed away uh, the morning of this recording. Yeah. Um, man, um, the guy, I, I, of course, I, I, I became familiarized with him due to his iconic performance as Omar Little on The Wire. But I, I, upon looking at his filmography, I, I've come to realize that Michael K. Williams mm-hmm. is a bit of um, the MVP of HBO, shall we say. Yeah. He is, if HBO were ever to build a Mount Rushmore of actors on that fucking network, Michael K. Williams would be on that because of uh, The Wire, because of Lovecraft Country, because mm-hmm. of The Night Off, because of Boardwalk Empire. Yeah. You know, these are huge influential shows from that particular network. And Michael K. Williams is it belongs up there with James Gandolfini, etc. You know, um, what are your you know what what was your reaction to finding out that Michael K. Williams so unfortunately passed? And what are your thoughts on his career? You know? Oh man, uh, I was just. Uh, like like last week, I I had actually bummed the wire out in for a rewatch. Um, oh. I know it's gonna take a while, yeah. to kind of do that. Uh, but I was reading about oh, I can't remember what I was reading about. Basically, it was like, uh, an article talking about the wire, and I was like, okay, I, I think it's time to kind of rewatch that because it's been a while, you know. Uh, it's been a while since like even uh, we had Charlie on board to talk about them on that particular episode of the whole. Yeah, a year ago. So yeah, waking up this morning and finding out the news, I was I was kind of like, oh man, damn. Yeah. Um, I mean, I I didn't really know like what to say or how to respond to that necessarily, mm-hmm. but you know, it's incredible the kind of performance that he had as Omar Little, right? Like you immediately mm. associate that face, uh, with his performance over the um, what was it like six years of the wire that that the wire was uh, being shot and being put out. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, so I, I think like it's a big kind of loss um, to the industry as a whole, uh, mm. you know, and I, I rule all the possible roles that he could have played. Uh, mm. I really loved him in a lot of other things as well. I think Boardwalk Empire stood out for me particularly. Ooh, he was great in that, yeah. Yeah, um, and like a ton of other stuff that he's been, 12 Years a Slave, uh, Lovecraft Country, which we've also talked about as well. Yeah, just last year, you know. Yeah, so uh, our, our condolences to, um, you know, his family and his friends and uh, may he rest in peace. Yeah, you know, I mean, we're all fans of uh, Omar. I, I, I keep wanting to say Omar, but his name is Michael K. Williams, you know. Yeah. Uh, but he's, be- of course, best known for Omar. Like, if you if you want to check out something that is not The Wire, yeah. that he was a part of, a show that I fucking love and <laughs> doesn't get it w- near enough credit for is The Night Off, um, oh. starring Riz Ahmed, which yeah. is one of the best miniseries that HBO has ever put out. Mm-hmm. Um, he's really great. He was in a great miniseries called When They See Us as well in 2019, uh, done by Eva DuVernay. Uh, he was in a few episodes of that. Um, I mean, all in all, what a what a stellar career, you know. Like, um, if there's one thing that he shouldn't be ashamed of is his work on TV yeah. and his work in films. Um, just one of the best actors out there. And like I said, he deserves to be right up there with James Gandolfini in terms of, you know, the Mount Rushmore of HBO. Mm-hmm. And that's saying a lot because, you yeah. know, HBO is just... I mean, in terms of like show, networks that are on TV, you know, yeah. that's not on the internet. Like yeah. HBO is is primo, la. and Michael K. Williams is is one of those big stars there. So, R.I.P. Michael K. Williams. Uh, you know, you made a a big impact in at least in my pop culture. Uh, forays. Uh, and and as well as me personally, like his his face for like a couple of years now is my screensaver on my iPhone. Um, oh. Really? And it still is. It's it's not going away for for a while. Like, yeah, it's a it's a portrait uh, drawing of of Umaleto. So, yeah, R.I.P. Michael K. Williams. Um, we're gonna be segueing now into the shows that we want to talk about. Um, in particular, we'll be beginning with uh, a show by Amy Sherman Palladino of Gilmore Girls fame. Mm-hmm. Uh, the female Erin Sorkin herself uh, <laughs> has crafted. Um, an incredible comedy about stand-up comedy called The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Later on, we'll be talking about um, what I can only describe as an incredibly lewd, super funny pregnancy rom-com in Catastrophe, a show that is anything but a catastrophe. In fact, it is my favorite show of all the shows that we're talking about here this week. And finally, we'll be talking about Thick Notaro's tragic, uh, tragic comedy, dramedy, one Mississippi, uh, which has a lot of uh, shades of, I would say, baskets in it. Uh, but we'll get into that a little bit later. Let's begin with Amy Sherman Palladino's smart new Spitfire heroine in The Marvelous Mises Maisel. You know? And as I mentioned, Amy Sherman Palladino is best known for her work on cult favorite shows like Gilmore Girls mm-hmm. and, and the sadly underrated Bun Hits. You know, she's the queen of sharp and savvy female protagonists on television. Yeah. Um, and, and with all due respect, I love Stars Hollow. I love Lorelai. I love Gilmore Girls. But I think Marvelous Mrs. Maisel might be her most winsome creation to date. Yeah. Um, her new series just doesn't present, you know, um, Sherman Palladino's like first foray into streaming with Amazon. You know, it also expands her scope beyond her small town storytelling forte. You know, it's set in 1958 New York City. It stars uh, Rachel Brosnahan as Miriam Mitch Maisel, who first begins her journey as an unrelentingly cheery, <laughs> upper-middle-class Jewish housewife, yep. striving to be the quote-unquote ideal woman of those traditional mores, you know, that, that those like 1950s mores or customs dictate. Like, at first glance, Mitch seems content to play the doting wife and mother to her sad sack aspiring stand-up comic husband, Joel Maisel, um, and two slightly off-putting children. Um, her, <laughs> her life appears, you know, charmed and vibrant, um, even as she studiously fits in her exhausting and kind of hilarious, hilariously absurd beauty and fitness regime into her, her daily routines. But soon enough, her picturesque life falls apart when Joel's plagiarized, humorless uh, stand-up routine bombs and she discovers that he's having an affair with his uh, empty-headed secretary. Um, mm. Even her parents seem to blame the dissolution of her marriage on Mitch for not being perfect enough. You know, It all seems bleak until one night Mitch drunkenly walks into a decrepit village comedy club and stumbles on stage. You know, <laughs> Once the spotlight is on her, she 
proceeds to unleash her frustrations in a profane, engaging, lewd, and unendingly funny moment of raw, nerved catharsis. Um, it may have been an accidental tirade against the world and against her husband, but it's also one hell of a stand-up routine mm. and a million times funnier than anything her husband dreamed he himself could be. And that's when she's discovered by a misanthropic club employee, uh, an upstart manager, Susie Meyerson, uh, who recognizes that her mix of improvisational instinct and observational wryness and impeccable comic timing could be something special. Um, we should be surprised by her sudden detour into a stand-up career, given how the show begins. But truthfully, the audience has already caught on to her talent very early on, you know, like from the show's very first scene, where, you know, the, she's confident and vivacious, Mitch kind of makes a side-splitting toast at her wedding, right? That's the first scene, you know? Yep. Um, to her day-to-day -day interactions with friends and family, we can already tell that she's a naturally funny storyteller, quick on her feet, always ready with her wisecrack. You know, she's written brilliantly, but it's lead actress Rachel Brosnahan's extraordinary performance that imbues her with, you know, that imbues her with these witty rapid-fire lines that have warmth and verve and occasionally fury. Um, that's how the show begins and Subsequently, the marvelous Miss Maisel delves into her struggling and then kind of successful career as a stand-up comic as the season goes along. As the seasons goes along, it's in season three right now, you know. Um, you were introduced to the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, I remember, um, later on. Uh, um. not, like, not so late that you missed out on season two, but before season two began, but after season one ended. Yeah. Um, I think I introduced you to Maisel when... We were recording an episode of genre in my house, uh, and then we I put it on because it just you know, I was just like you know the show is great you all should watch it you know yeah. um what 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 do you think about uh Mizo now now that you've had like a few years to kind of stew with it oh man uh I yeah I remember binging through season one shortly after well at that point in time there was only season one uh you know and I was happy to hear that season two was out but I just never got down to it so now that I am I'm caught up with season two at least I haven't I haven't done season three yet. Uh, it it's still I I rewatched um season one uh then going to season two and all it's still uh even rewatching it right like what stands out for me is definitely the standout uh the stand up bits for sure uh mm -hmm. that continues to be you know uh I iconic I think the first time she goes out on stage by far is the most memorable one maybe just short of the other one uh that she uh, that she does when the family's on holiday. Yes, yes. Oh my skills. god! Yeah, yeah. That, the one where Abe is in, in attendance. Yeah, yeah, I think that definitely edges out top place for the for the stand up bit that I like the most mm -hmm. uh, from all of that. Uh, but but on top of that, like I think it's a very interesting and well put together look at you know what not just what stand up is like, right? But like using stand up and and the whole industry and and the process uh, of of creation within comedy itself to take a look at a woman trying to find her voice and trying to find her identity, not only as a stand-up, as a comic, uh, as a mother, as a divorcee, maybe. <laughs> yeah, sort of, sort of. Sort of, sort of, yeah. yeah you yeah. know, and, and through all of, um, you know, the various complications of her life, her family, her culture, um, and this is just the greatest society that she finds herself in, um, yeah. you know, comedy becomes this incredibly cathartic um, mm -hmm. outlet for her or at least it is in the beginning until she finds mm -hmm. out that it's actually work uh, mm -hmm. and her just kind of like working through all of that is is incredibly charming you know I, I think like the the dynamic duo of both her and Susie uh, yeah. and, and the kind of relationship they have is 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 frustrating and incredibly endearing at the same time mm -hmm. uh, but more importantly I think like I keep coming back to the idea that um, there's this moment where Susie goes for for advice, right? Uh, she goes to the... Uh, I can't remember what the club is called, but yeah, she goes to find advice and she's like, yeah, I, I'm a personal manager, so what do I do now? Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I think across well, the two seasons that I watch, it's consistently about that, right? Like the fact that nobody really knows what they're doing necessarily yeah. and they're just trying to find their way through that and it is in the doing and the making of mistakes and and just kind of stumbling about um that you discover these moments of, of kind of like brilliance and and kind of glory on stage and 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 like triumph in personal uh life and relationships and that to me makes it feel like like a show that's worth celebrating 
you yeah. know um there's a great balance of both like the humor aspect of it and the very deeply personal uh drama portions that i find extremely compelling like i do wish like she did more stand up based or rather that was more highlighted across mm-hmm. the seasons uh, mm-hmm. but it's understandable uh when you when you take a when you take a step back and see that you know she needs uh the show needs to show you what her life is like and where she's at uh, for her to extract, you know, the the, the humor and the, the comedy from that, and and see how that she she turns into a successful set. Yeah, yeah, you know, the thing about a, sh- a comedy about a comedy is that it has been kind of done before. Oh yeah. The f- the sad part about those previous comedies about comedy, um, I'm gonna poke again. I, I'm sorry <laughs> if, you, if you're like a long time listener. You know I fucking hate this show, Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip by Aaron Sorkin, yeah. which was about an SNL-type show where at the end of every episode, they show the sketch that they've been you know, trying to trying to plot out and, and you know discussing the merits of the jokes and all that. And then at the end, it always ends with like a wet fart because the sketch itself is not funny. Aaron Sorkin is not a comedian. Like, mm-hmm. He doesn't know how to do sketch comedy or stand-up comedy. You know? And that's the big difference with Measle here. And, and I think at the, at, the end, at the end of the year, we'll be talking about a show called Hex as well which is probably my number one show of the year, which is similar, a, a bit of a more contemporary dissection of the stand-up comedy yeah. uh, circuit and scene and the people behind it. Um, uh, you, you brought up a good point about why it's important um, to not just showcase the stand-up sets of, of Rachel Brosnahan. You know, it's, it's important to showcase her life because, you know, it's converse, you know, like it's inverse. Mm-hmm. Like the more difficult or depressing her life gets, the more hysterical and eye-opening her sets become, you know. Yeah. Like any good comedian, she has to mine personal misery for mm-hmm. public hilarity. And more than simply kind of inciting, you know, barrels of laughs, you know, her, her incisive anecdotes also feel like, you know, the typical Amy Sherman Palladino kind of feminist rallying cry, um, which plays even more potently in an era like the 1950s, you know. Um, uh, Early on in the show, she kind of proclaims, you know, why do women have to pretend they're something they're not? Um, Why do we have to pretend to be stupid when we're not? Why do we have to pretend to be helpless when we're not helpless? Why do we have to pretend to be sorry when there's nothing to be sorry about? Um, And that's kind of what the show is about, you know. Sure, she kind of stumbles along the way as she learns the craft, you know, like you said, you know, she mm-hmm. soon realizes she can't wing it all the time. This is a, an art form. Um, and she has to balance a new job and being a single mother. But our collective desire to see her succeed, you know, to root for her is overwhelming. Yeah. And mm-hmm. that's a huge credit to the level of investment um, Brosnahan's captiv- captivating performance uh, gives and Sherman Palladino's wonderful writing invokes, you know. Um, Palladino is kind of famed for her exorbitantly long scripts, you know. Um, <laughs> um, a Sherman Palladino episode is said to be, at least by the actors like, in interviews, have said to be at least 15 pages longer than a regular hour-long episode of TV. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, her her scripts are famously filled with di- dizzying dialogue exchanges, blistering quips, abundant pop culture references, and I think Shimon Palladino is in the peakest form here. She's the most Shimon Palladino she's ever been. Um, she might even be be sharper than what was considered her prime Gilmore years because you know this uncensored streaming format yeah. allows her to push boundaries and use language that she could not use on uh on the CW or the WB, you know. Um, and it's great to see Sherman Palladino kind of like let loose and see what she can do with the freedom of streaming. Do you agree? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Uh, just like being able to let loose like that, right? You can't... It, uh, Mrs. Maisel is a completely different creature from Gilmore Girls, you know? Uh, mm. and, uh, and, and just the fact that she has this opportunity to just like shine, do basically whatever she wants uh, mm-hmm. in the telling of this story, like really, really does... Yeah. I, I really enjoy what she's done here. Like, this is definitely one of my favorite shows. Um, just within this particular genre, for sure. And I mm-hmm. think Sherman Palladino has done an amazing job. And I'm glad that we live in an age where she's allowed to explore all of that. Yes, definitely, man. Um, any final thoughts about why people should watch The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel before, before we move on to the next topic? 
Um, yeah, we've talked about all the kind of good things, but there are like kind of small things also that, you know, really kind of add a lot of value to that. Uh, yep. The set design and dressing is phenomenal. Oh, right? beautiful, the, the yeah. Pre- the, uh, I mean, it's not period costumes per se, but the costuming is fantastic. The set design is fantastic. Everything seems like, you know, it's from that time. Everything has its right place from the lighting and the way that it's shot. Uh, it mm. really, really does feel uh, you know, that we were in the 50s for that. Uh, in addition to that, the song choices, spot on, right? Like, just yeah. having these oldies come on. Oldies to us now, of course, but like, oldies yeah. uh, come on at like the perfect kind of emotional moments. Uh, you know, it just adds to all of that. Like, it's not just about the fact that it's a good story with great dialogue and uh, a fantastic kind of stand-up bits. Like, as a package, like, mm-hmm. this has possessed and polished um, you know, and and like the punchline always hits, and I mean, you can't really ask for more than that when it comes to a show about stand-up comedy. Oh yeah, definitely. You know, this is um such a sterling showcase, not just for Paladino's writing, but for the costuming and the music and the set design. It's so immersive. It puts you in the nineteen fifties, but it has this vibrancy and color that makes it different from, say, a Mad Men oh, version yeah. of the nineteen fifties. Mm-hmm. You know, primarily because of you know she's different. She lives in a different area. Um, her life is different, you know, and a great showcase of, uh, you know, this one particular woman's self-discovery and liberation via the unlikeliest of means. And Mitch is a very driven and strong-willed and ambitious heroine with, you know, a a very filthy mouth that could make a sailor blush. And (laughs) it would be a shame if you missed out on her journey. So if you haven't caught up on The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, as with all the other shows here, catch it on Amazon Prime. Hurley urge you. It actually ha- is the cheapest of all of the streaming services. Yeah. Um. It's 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 one ninety nine, right? Mm-hmm. Um. It's. I mean, why not? It's it's a couple of bucks. It's really nothing. It's a nasi lemak, yeah. like on on the morning, you know. Yeah. Uh, in addition to that, all the shows we're talking about, and the expanse, and Indispo, and the boys, and all that, we also have upcoming to the Amazon Prime streaming service, the Lord of the Rings show. Next year, oh man, that looks like Jeff Bezos spent a good chunk of change. I mean, okay, for him, probably not. But for us, it's a good chunk of change. Yeah. Uh, at the moment, I think it is the most expensive TV show ever made. Um, mm. Going up to, if I'm not wrong, 2.8 million per an episode. Uh, wow, really? Yeah, they, they've um, they've surpassed Game of Thrones uh, in terms of the average amount of money that we spent per an episode. So we will see. We will see. I mean, like it, it. It's a solid, like you know, writing team and and directors and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um. So I'm very curious to see. But like, Amazon Prime does have a lot of uh, things going for, um, for the moment. Hey, if you want your high fantasy fix, you don't even have to wait for a lot of the rings. Uh, oh, yeah. The Wheel of Time next month. Uh, oh, yeah. Debuting on Amazon Prime. That looks great too. It look. It also looks very expensive. But Jeff Bezos <laughs> can fuck it up. You know. Yeah, yeah. With everything everyone has been buying on Amazon, I am not at all surprised. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's kind of like um, I, I traditionally don't like you know like super uber wealthy uh elite capitalists and all that who can you know go to space on a whim. Yeah. You know, but he saved the expense because he personally liked the show, and I was like, okay, <laughs> I, I, I I like you know, <laughs> yeah. Going into this episode, I was deeply conflicted. I do feel like there's a lot to be said about, you know, him being the richest mm-hmm. man in the world. And a lot of those are my own kind of like personal feelings about wealth distribution and politics, etc., etc. But I mean, you can't deny the fact that like a lot of that money has given us like a lot of great entertainment. Um, oh, yeah. So, yeah, that's one one checkbox uh, in, in his in his role. I guess in his definitely, mm. definitely, you know, um, and and Maisel is one of those boxes that you have to check once you sign up for the uber cheap one ninety nine um monthly streaming price. So why not? Uh, next up, we'll move on to a show that if Fleabag didn't exist, and technically, technically, Fleabag was <laughs> is is a BBC show that Amazon bought. Yeah, you know, um, much in the way that Expanse is a sci-fi show that Amazon bought, you know. Yeah. So if you want to talk about real original programming that started on the ground floor with Amazon. Um, Catastrophe is by far my favorite show on Amazon Prime, like mm-hmm. bar none, you know, including <laughs> the expense and everything else. You know, it's one of the smartest, most charming, funniest shows that you'll see at any time of your life. It's a sitcom about an American man played by Rob Delaney yeah. visiting London who meets an Irish woman played by Sharon Hogan. Um, they flirt, they launch a week long affair, um, not quite a one night stand, rather like a seven day 
24-7 fuckfest stand. Yeah. Um, and then she discovers that she's pregnant. And then they decide to give this relationship thing a go. Um, not only do they decide to give a relationship a go, they decide to get married. Um, the, the premise sounds like rom commy and far-fetched. Mm-hmm. But, you know, since when have those two elements kind of prevented enjoyment, you know? Um, yeah. The, the key here is this show is, I think, even more than Mizo, of for a um, a minute per laugh basis, you know. Yeah. Um. The 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 level of the number of jokes and the volume of it and the velocity of it, um. It is so incredible. It's probably the the best funny, like the most like you know we love a lot of dramedies with Atlantis and all of that, but just for a pure funny quotient. Yeah. Catastrophe is anything but a catastrophe. It's one of the funniest shows out there. It's super delightful. Um, some of the jokes are so <laughs> insanely vulgar and lewd and un-PC that you can't believe that you know it's uh it's on TV, it's on yeah. a streaming service. But at the same time, it's the kind of jokes that you will kind of make with your significant other too, you know, like in bed or at home. It's just kind of like private angers and frustrations and observations that you would make. And there's a certain of level of authenticity to to the to the dialogue, to the relationship, to the messiness of both these characters, you know, mm-hmm. um, it's it's a warmly vicious and viciously warm sitcom that's extremely acidic in its tone, yeah, but very warm in its heart. Um, you've gotten through, you know, um, season one and and uh, and about half of season two. Yeah. Um, what do you think of uh, catastrophe so far? Oh man. I mean, like, I didn't, I didn't think I would like the show, but like, I fucking love the show. It's so good. It is so good. Like, just uh, to your point, the density of laughs and drama is mm-hmm. insane. Like, I don't know how you keep that up. And at no point in time, and I'm, I'm like, you know, a fair bit true, everything. At no point in time is anything played for laughs just for the sake of playing it for laughs, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it is organic and within the scene itself, it makes sense in the story, it makes sense for the characters as well. And, like, they just nail it every single time. It is insane the kind of chemistry that Delaney and, and Hogan have on screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. And, like, in addition to that, the side characters are hilariously funny. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it just adds to this... In- uh, I don't know how to say it. Like, it feels like such a charmed life, mm-hmm. if I could say that, in terms of the fact that it is so well-infused with humor, uh, yeah. whether vicious or well-meaning or unintentional. Um, yeah. That it, 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 I mean, it's like, man, I, like, does anybody live that kind of life? I, I don't really care because I feel like I'm living vicariously to the fact that, like, people may perhaps live lives like that amidst all the problems and issues that they have to kind of sort out and work out and, and you know, just like, just trying to navigate these things that two people would just never prepared for. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, so, like, so far, Catastrophe for me has been an entire hit. It has been an, such an easy watch, um, despite the fact that, you know, again, it is fairly dense in terms of, like, the repartee, the quibs, the witticisms that come in and out, you know, um, and, self-referential human that that gets uh, gets more that gets increasingly present as we go along uh, within mm-hmm. this season itself so I, I I love this show I really do love like some of the side characters as well I, I think like the mandates that uh, that Rob has with with Chris yeah, uh, yeah. Um, Sharon's brother right yeah uh, no that's not Fergus Sharon's brother that's right. Uh, she's Sharon's friend. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sharon's best friend, uh, best friend's uh, husband. Yeah, quote unquote yeah. best friend. Yeah. Course, yeah. I mean, like hilariously funny. So so good. Like it's just like uh, laugh a minute. Um, mm-hmm. it feels good. But at no no point in time, like the the drama, the humor never downplays the drama. Right. Mm-hmm. Like the humor never downplays the issues as well. Uh, it might be coping mechanisms at times, you know, it might be just their way of expressing themselves of either like love or disdain or, or, or hate in some areas, but it's always, always well-meaning in that manner. And it's nice to see, you know, them capture uh, humor as a means of communication in mm-hmm. that way. I think it's a rare thing to see it done on TV and for it to be done this well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's outstanding. I really, really enjoy Catastrophe. 
um, Catastrophe is one of the special kind of sitcoms that, like, when when Isa mentioned that there's a certain um, heightened level of reality to it, it doesn't mean that it's unrealistic in the way that Friends is unrealistic. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. you know? Like, Friends, it seems like they lead a different kind of charm lives where they don't have to worry about money or rent or, you know, and, and stuff like that. Like, these characters feel real because they do worry about money and rent and how to take care of themselves and their children and their jobs and everything else, you know. What it seems, uh, what it seems almost fa- wish fulfillment fantasy is the repartee between the two of them, you know. Yeah. How, how they can get past troubled patches with, you know, just like the funniest of jokes um, and almost self-effacing jokes at that too, you know. Um, it's, very, very, very good, and also very, very good in its depiction of its the messiness of marriage, the messiness of relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, as you get into season three and season four, it goes into a bit more dramatic territory. Um, it still remains just as funny, but it deals with a lot of other things. You know, you kind of hinted at um Rob's um alcohol addiction, um his alcoholism, which hasn't been touched upon in the show just yet, but mm-hmm. it will be. Um, the troubles at uh raising two children. Um, for me- family troubles and by the way speaking of family everyone in the cast the side characters are great even from you know her friends in school like Sharon's friends in, in school oh, yeah. um, Fergo and all that but I mean the highlight of the show has to be in terms of side characters has to be Rom's mother uh, Rom's oh, mother oh my god the, the late Carrie Fisher. Um, this was her last uh role mm-hmm. uh, prior to her passing away. Yeah. Um, in in fact the 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 last season actually um coincidentally culminates with uh a storyline uh, featuring her death and funeral. Uh, mm-hmm. which you know, uh, uh, which was planned, but of course they had no idea that you know Carrie Fisher was going to pass away in real life. So it adds a level of poignance to its se- uh, series finale as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you know um. As Rob and Sharon, these two actors, they're so cheerfully lewd and crude and also intelligent and witty and kind oh, to each other. Yeah. Um, they are a rarity among lovers in sitcoms. You know, they are mature people who don't spend a lot of time leering at other attractive people or engaging in, you know, trumped-up, beano, like, oh, you forgot my birthday kind of squabbles, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, the pregnancy simply forces a fast-forward in your relationship and they don't get to or, or have to go through all the getting to know you, deciding we're ready kind of stuff to, that we expect to experience in real life or in entertainment depictions of having a baby, you know. And the cross-cultural elements is also one of the delights of the show. It works very, very well. Um, Rob's in advertising. He moves to London. <laughs> um, she's a primary school teacher. And, and the show doesn't make Rob an ignorant American, but, um, you know, and her friends and family aren't, you know, these... Uh, impeccably articulate snobs, you know, as is the caricature of British characters, you know. Yeah. Um. Indeed, like nobody much cares for anybody in the group, but instead of hostility, like you know, Sharon's brother, parents, and friends all insult each other and Rob <laughs> with a very brisk, funny energy. And the primary glimpse we get of Rob's, you know, stateside family is, of course, you know, as I mentioned, like Carrie Fisher as a current guest star as the mother, you know. And yeah. She's so amusingly cranky. Oh, uh, amusing. Yeah. Uh, she just can't be bothered to get excited or upset over Rob's plans to stay in, in, in England and become a dad. She's just trying to find a way out for him, you know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's, it's such a great, uh, unique way of, a unique sitcom that, that, uh, that focuses on a marriage and a relationship. Um, and again, like the density of jokes is just, <laughs> it's, I, I wouldn't say it's quite Tina Fey level. Like it's not 30 rock or, um, yeah. or, you know, that oak, but it's close, you know, and mm-hmm. if you get close to the light speed of Tina Fey, that's fucking fast. Yeah. yeah. It's, yeah. yeah, it's so cunningly woven into the drama and the characters and the fact that none of the jokes feel inorganic. Like it's not just, there because somebody thought of a, of a funny joke, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. And the jokes are really funny to the point to where I found myself like at certain moments like pausing the show to write down the jokes. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I, I spent a lot of time like 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 just rewinding just to hear the joke again just because it's so good and it hits you like you catch the it's so fast that you catch the humor on a very kind of surface level like it tickles your funny bone and it's just yeah. like oh my god that was really funny but I'm not really sure I understand the whole joke let me go back and just listen again I found myself doing that a lot which took me a fair bit of time to get through like some of the really funny bits um, yeah. but yeah it's exactly like that yes yes ex- exactly you know it's this that it's kind of this delicate balance of concepts, you know, and they have these uh, honest arguments, this very clever humor, and this very deep compassion amongst the characters as well, you mm-hmm. know, and how they merge that together makes catastrophe feel 
identifiable and relatable. It's sometimes so real it hurts. The jokes are sometimes so funny that you can't imagine anybody like thinking about that on the spot. But that's the only <laughs> level of like unrealism, you know. Yeah. But then again, you know, like Rob Delaney in his real life is a comedian, so who knows? You know, maybe there are some people like that who can just you know think so quickly on your feet, uh, and you admire them. Um, yeah. And there's so much joy in the show. The comedy is first and foremost. This is not a dramedy. This is a sitcom. There is there is a joke factory. It's, mm-hmm. And it is it's masterful in that, you know. And the beauty of that is that it doesn't have to sacrifice the depth of the characters for yeah. laughs. Yeah, you know, exactly. They, they go they go together hand in hand, you know. Um, yeah. Um, any final thoughts or like what else do you like about um catastrophe before before we got to move on to our last topic? Oh, I mean, I think that pretty much sums it up. Like, big fan. I'm looking forward to continuing on the rest of the series. Um. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like the jump from season one to season two, um, uh, caught me off guard. Uh, the first episode, uh, I didn't think that that would be a direction they they went into. But yeah, mm. like totally sold on that. I've got like what two? I've got two more seasons. Uh, to kind of finish up, and I'm very, really, really looking forward to that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the thing is, the time jump from season one to season two sort of led me to believe that they would do the same for the beginning of every season. Um, yeah. but, but the beauty of it is that season three leads you to... It's, it's the reverse twist. Season three begins by leading you to believe there was a big time jump. And then it turns out it's just like mere seconds after season two ended. Um, it's mm-hmm. great. It's great. Um, yeah. Again, Catastrophe available on Amazon Prime. Uh, probably my favorite homegrown Amazon Prime show. Uh, that is not the expense of feedback which were kind of bought from other networks and are now housed on Amazon Prime. Uh, yeah, it's it's just wonderful. It's it's almost feedback level good, and that's very yeah, very high praise. It is. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm gonna be moving on to uh the final show that we'll be talking about here. It's called One Mississippi. Um, it's more uh more of a tra- traditional dramedy. In fact, it's more of a tragic comedy. You know. Yeah. Um, I I caught on to Thick Nataro's brilliant uh dramedy One Mississippi a few years too late. Uh, just last year actually. Um, a couple of years after it ended, but. It's such a gem. It's a sensitive and empathetic show that mines subtle deadpan humor from grief and sexuality and trauma and family complexities, you know. And the the thing about One Mississippi is that it's so true. Um, Thick Nataro herself uh, admits that this is a very autobiographical show. Um, and and she she mines a very a particularly bad year for her in which her mother died. Yeah. Um, she almost died. She was diagnosed with breast cancer. And she turns all those real life points into breathtakingly tender TV. Uh, one Mississippi is one of those very kind of low-key uh, treasures. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it doesn't have the kind of like pizzazz that Maisel has. It doesn't have the kind of like laugh a minute factor or immediate vibrancy that Catastrophe has, you know. But the more you watch the show, the more you kind of fall in love with with uh, Thick Nataro and her fictional counterpart Thick Nataro. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's 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 great, you know, and it joins the ranks of those like uh, uh, sad comedian dramedies, uh, which are you know so uh, overtaking TV at the moment. Um, what what do you think about One Mississippi? Because I, I didn't give you like any preface. I didn't tell nope. you what, was, what 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 it was about. You know, like what were your thoughts going into it? And and now after watching a season uh, and a half of it, you know, what 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 do you think? Uh yeah, I I love Tignataro. Uh I like coming to One Mississippi. I didn't really know you didn't give me any any preface uh preface to that. Yeah. Um, I mean like, it is, it's such a personal work. Right, uh, or at least you you believe it to be a personal work, you know, from from everything that she says, uh, and and every time she kind of like launches into her own little story time, right? Uh, it really does come across as an intensely personal thing. Um, there is a lot of dry wit and humor here that um th- that drives the well, maybe not drives, but yeah, there's a lot of dry wit and humor here that kind of belies some of the deeper issues and troubles that she has to navigate while she's doing all of that. Um, sorting out her relationships with her late mother, with her fight with cancer, with her stepfather, you know, uh, with, with her traumatic childhood, mm. growing up and all of that. But um, yeah, it, it is a fascinating look at how someone works through difficult 
relationships and trauma in their life. Like having to come back from LA in, 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 to, to Mississippi and just like unfold and unpack all these parts of her life that she may have left behind at one point in time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and using that at the same time to kind of like, you know, tell a story and, and, and it kind of feed into this not necessarily coping mechanism, but a, like a form of therapy for her is immensely um, compelling. Mm-hmm. Um, just the way that, you know, she goes about that. Like, And in addition to that, like her imagination is kind of through the roof. I think like the, the little parts where whenever she has one of her trips, uh, my mm-hmm. one favorite one in particular is the one where she's in the graveyard. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it is... Um, yeah, it, it, it's funny and it's laugh out loud, but at the same time, there's a seriousness to it to kind of like remind the audience that, you know, these are these are real situations that real people go through. Uh, mm. But at the same time, that does not mean like it's all doom and gloom and it's all end of the world. Um, there are ways in which you can cope and can survive and can overcome mm. uh, and find closure within that. And for me, that's like the main kind of core draw for one Mississippi is just how she works through that, right? And along the way, through the working through of her problems and her relationships, you know, other people begin to heal as well. Uh, mm. And like, much like her, her, you know, um, journey through having cancer, like the story plays out in much the same way. Yeah. Uh, and some of the revelations are just kind of like out of the blue, right? Like you think <laughs> that, okay, I get the sum of what it is she's going through. Yeah. And then they drop a new bomb on you, and it's like, oh my god, seriously. Yeah. Um. Yeah, but you know, it's always in good, not good faith necessarily, but you know, it's always optimistic without mm-hmm. like shoving that in your face, right? Mm-hmm. Like her character in and of itself, yeah, she comes across as you know cynical and and a little bit jaded, but there's always a a shred of hope, and that mm-hmm. especially comes true with. Um, every time that she decides to do, uh, to tell a story on the air, um, yeah. that and just like her music tastes are just like phenomenal, absolutely mm-hmm. phenomenal. Um, really, really love that particular part about it. I, I feel like you know, if I were to do a radio show, I would love to do a radio show like that. Um, yeah, yeah, very personal, very storytelling oriented, um, yeah. raw and authentic. You know, like um, if you have seen Tignataro's um. 2012 uh, stand-up performance, like stand-up mm-hmm. comedy special live. Yeah. Um, it live was like la- largely one Mississippi. That's the the story <laughs> of her, of her personal crises. Like this is just yeah. a more, <clears throat> excuse me, a more fictional, observational, um, retelling of uh, these traumatic events in her life. And it's a formula that that works very well because it's so personal. Therefore, it's so authentic. You know, um. She she plays a character called Tignataro. Um, mm-hmm. it's obviously based on herself, but she isn't a stand-up comedian on the show. As as no. Isa has alluded to, she is a host of an NPR type style radio <laughs> show where she shares personal stories from her life. Um, it's a cool framing device, I think, that allows you to connect with the themes of the show yeah. a bit more directly. Uh, and t- uh, and takes monologues. Uh, almost hypnotic like i want to close my eyes and just like listen to her she has a really really great voice you know um one of the characters well one of the best things about the show though it's not just, it's not just about thick it's about a lot of the other people in her life oh yeah you know, she's she has crafted a very interesting empathetic weird father figure in Bill, <laughs> um who almost serves as the de facto star of the show like he his slowly developing backstory um his weird cadence his, yeah you know and, and and everything like and the more you learn about bill the the more sympathy you have for him the more you learn about her brother as well you know um in fact season two is probably a, it's probably the best of, of the one Mississippi seasons and it, it focuses on all three of them equally. It's a trio of beautiful love stories that that, that take different trajectories. Um, Tig is falling in love with um, her street producer, which is a bit of a problem. Yeah. Um, Bill has his own, uh, finds a, a love interest as well, as hard as there is to believe because <laughs> Bill, Bill's so weird at first, but, you know, his, his kind of emotional core is, serves as a, a, a great linchpin for the show, um, and her brother is great as well. And you know, the the, the writing by both Tignataro and Diablo Cody, who you may know from um, Juno, yeah, uh, is is 
beautiful not not in just in terms of its insightful perspective and its very grounded voice and its very dry humor um which all of those like shine through every facet you know but in terms of the emotional core of it the overall feel that i get from it is both warm and sweet but you know cynical and realistic about the troubles that you know yeah. normal people go through in their life you know um it's 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 never better than when it's balancing the real world with what it's going on in tick's head you know um it's it's brilliantly evocative and and there's so many cool like you know like the devices to get you into a hits whether it be a monologue or whether it be you know dream sequences mm-hmm. um they're all really interesting ways to get you to understand tick and her world and her point of view better like you know it's so easy to look at someone who had you know who lost a mother who had cancer breast cancer and then mastectomy and then going through remission and then she had pneumonia which almost killed her um it, but then to you see it play out in such i don't want to say undramatic ways but the, the show makes a point of like underplaying things yeah you know? mm-hmm. um that that makes it feel incredibly authentic and relatable and direct and you know, uh, and you know the method also uh, establishes a precedent for Tick to interact with her memories that leads to some of the bolder scenes down the line. You know, there's yeah. kind of there's like nothing otherworldly about One Mississippi, but Tick's grieving process uh, feels very real. And then you move on to other things about Tick that that makes her feel insecure, makes her feel like you know um, down. You know, you, there, there's talk about you know uh, this was filmed obviously during the me too movement of uh 2016 and you know it, it, a lot of the episodes especially later in season two talks about sexual harassment in the workplace mm-hmm. about lesbian relationships um especially being in one mississippi which you know is way down south yeah uh, of a very a very red state shall we say and 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 you know, think it's not that way um it's very great but it doesn't ever portray the people who live in Mississippi as like ignorant hicks also. Like everybody seems to be very fully fleshed out and three-dimensional and empathetic in ways that you could never imagine. Um, and, and and Tick is just one part of, of that fabric, you know. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, what, what else do you think about um, One Mississippi? Like what other like bright spots of it? Oh man, the family dynamics. Yeah. It's yeah. fascinating. Yeah. It's absolutely yeah. fascinating. Like... Uh, I I personally see a lot of reflections of people I know, uh, whether within my own family or within within those of my friends, um, mm-hmm. and like those moments are so well played out, you know, yep. like the arguments they have, um, you know, the sarcasm that gets thrown around, Bill's just like stoic, I guess, yeah, yep. um, demeanor and like the slow breakdown of that that stoicism. Um, as as he really does try to like make amends and and to I, I believe in one episode he says it's you know to to make right right um, mm-hmm. and and it's it's so heartening to kind of see that effort there as as kind of like uh, a stepfather who wants to step up right um, in yeah. in in the absence of his partner his wife and and but- you know the the kids mothers. Um, mm. And having this very fascinating kind of observe, uh, observation, no study of mm-hmm. what adult relationships are like within families, um, mm-hmm. as complicated as the Bavaros uh, themselves, um, is is it's a joy to watch. It is mm-hmm. complex and nuanced and well acted, um, and at no point in time, you know, it, it feels it feels real, uh, mm-hmm. and, and that like keeps me kind of rooted to my seat like there's so many things to like about this but there are just these moments that are just like spot on um dinner uh, you know uh, dinner conversations at the table yeah um, just kind of like the strange moments of support or the the struggle to support each other as they kind of work through their grief Mm -hmm. uh and all the revelations that come like spilling out after their mom's death Mm -hmm. uh it is it is very hard to tell tear yourself away from that, you know. Um, mm. just like watching how well these characters are crafted and acted and relate to one another. I love it. Yeah, yeah. You know, one of the defining aspects of of Thick, like, has been hinted at early in the show, but I think you haven't gotten there yet. Is the the molestation that she suffered as a child, you know? Yeah. Um, and a bit of a Bill's complicity in it for for not believing her or not helping her stop it. Um, as well as her brother's complicity in it as well. Uh, like they didn't participate in the molestation, but they should have known better and protected her more, you know. Yeah. And a part of her resentment comes from that. Um, part of Bill's 
coldness and resistance to uh, inability to offer the warmth and comfort to take is also part of his guilt uh, of, of feeling that as well. And it's very well played and very underplayed. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, it's just such an underplayed show. Like, I don't know whether like that excites you, but it should because it makes it feel real and very, very grounded in a way that Maisel and Catastrophe is not. Yeah, you know? for sure. For sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, how far into season two are you right now? Um, let me see. Uh, it's the episode about the crystal. Uh, mm. So that's two episodes into season two? Mm, okay, okay. Yeah. I, I mean, I believe like in the late season one and early season two is when she's beginning to develop a relationship with her producer, Kate, right? Uh, yeah, I think by that point in time, it's really, really clear like she has a thing for Kate. Uh, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they, yeah, they had the Christmas party already. So you know, uh, that yeah. season, uh, that's episode one of season two. Yes, her relationship with Kate, uh, who is self-described straight but kind of bi, uh, <laughs> a, ba- a, a, a baby gayer, shall we say, is yeah. one of the best aspects of season two. As is the slow unraveling of um John Rothman's Bill, uh-huh. uh, who is who's great at, at portraying him. You know, Bill is sort of like this stoic fortress you know very prim very <laughs> proper but but the more you get to know him the more you understand how he came to be yeah. uh and it, he, bill kind of reminds me a lot of um uh christine from baskets oh um, yeah yeah you know in a way that you don't kind of get them at first until yeah. until you really get them you know uh-huh. um and and in a way like one mississippi reminds me of a of a baskets quite a bit in terms of its dramatic uh leanings yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's definitely not as outlandish. Uh, no, not outlandish. Yeah, I mean, the, some of the shows that we talked about in the Atlanta episode, you know, because Atlanta is very magic realism. There are yeah. out, out, outrageous moments here and there, yeah. you know. But on the flip side, there is the kind of the baskets of one Mississippi type of dramedies that are very, very rooted in reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That that is definitely tonally. Very different from the other two shows that we talked about, but no less enjoyable. I mean, like if you want something like grounded and and character driven, you know, and and just like great music all around as well, um, mm. like One Mississippi is really really worth a watch. Yeah, yeah, you know, one of the controversies that One Mississippi could not avoid was, um, in fact, one of the reasons why Tick Nataro was so cool with the show ending was because she wanted to distance herself from Louis C.K., who is the a, a co-creator of the show. Yeah. Um, in season two, there is a very thin... The, the thing with season two is there was this plot line about uh, one of the executives at her radio company uh, who basically, you know, in an interview, took out his dick and started masturbating. Mm-hmm. Um, this was a year before the revelations about Louis C.K., who did the same thing. So we we didn't know at the time that Thick was was sort of referencing that about yeah. about her former boss, uh, Louis C.K. You know, and and you didn't know any place much differently today. You know, at, at first it seems a bit unrealistic. Like who would ever do that and think they can get away with it? And then you realize that someone actually did do, do that and got away with it for decades. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it plays very differently. But, you know, sadly, it got cancelled after season two. So, you have only two seasons of this to watch. And very quick seasons as well. It's just like 10 episodes each. Um, Catastrophe is probably the quickest watch that you can have. Because it's six episodes a season, half an hour each. Um, you gotta love the Brits, man. And they're, they're uh, leaning towards brevity. Yeah. Uh, they always leave you wanting more. And I do want more. Um, Mezo will continue. Uh, it's one of Amazon's biggest uh, Emmy hits uh, in mm-hmm. terms of like it just keeps Brosnahan and Palladino and and the the lady who plays Susie Myers is they keep getting awards so yeah keep giving you more seasons so yeah these are the shows that you should be looking out for on Amazon Prime and um, in addition of course we've already talked about Undone and the Expense and Fleabag and the Boys and Invincible oh my gosh so many good shows yeah is there anything else on Amazon Prime that you like that that I have not like caught oh man. Uh, I I think recently those are the ones that I have been watching largely. I don't think. Oh, has there been anything? Mm. I I can't think of anything. I mean, Good Omens we talked about quite a bit also. Yeah. Um, that that was pretty good. Um, Jack Ryan is a fun show, but it's not great. Um. As in, oh right, the Clancy one, yeah, 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 yeah the one with uh, Jim from the office, uh, John Krasinski, uh, is, is Jack Ryan that one? Um, Man in High Castle, Man in High Castle, yeah, but that one is a bit of a guilty pleasure. Okay. Um, 
Hmm, what else? Tales from the Loop, I enjoyed quite a bit. Also. Yeah, we've talked about that on, on genre. Yes, we yeah. have talked about that uh, on genre. One great miniseries that I failed to mention also, Good Omens, was was really great. Yeah. Oh, oh right. Yes. Did we talk about Good Omens? I think we did. We did, we did. We had a fairly wrong, long review about that. I think uh, I gave it like 7.5 or an 8. So yeah, quite a high, yeah. high rating. Um. Well, shout out. Uh, there is... Amazon also picked up RWBY, which was like this kind of indie 3D animation from way back. Um, that becomes Rooster Teeth, right? Yeah, uh, with Rooster Teeth, and then like now it's on Amazon Prime as well. Ah, uh, yeah, so yeah. they picked that up as well. I don't know. Is, is there anything else in particular? Uh, is that is that uh, pronounced as Ruby or RWBY? I believe so, but then okay. there's a dispute about that. But I do believe it's called Ruby. Okay, okay. Yeah, I felt like some people call it RWBY and some people call it Ruby, but yeah, I wasn't sure which was the correct one. Um, oh, Sneaky yes. That's a G- Sneaky Pete is Amazon Prime, you're right. Yeah. Um, Sneaky Pete is really good, especially its first couple of seasons. Yeah. Were excellent. Um, the first season of Homecoming starring Julia Roberts, um, it was uh, created by Sam Esmile, uh, mm-hmm. who most famously created Mr. Robot. Um, first season of Homecoming is phenomenal. I, I would recommend it as well. In fact, I should have Included that in this in this one, uh, but oh, well, you know, yeah. Shout out Homecoming, which I really really like. He had a terrible season two, but season one was fantastic. Yeah, honorable mention Homecoming. Uh, maybe we'll talk about it another time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the second season of Homecoming was not by Sam Esmail, like they changed showrunners. So, um, it was meant to be like an anthology type of show. Uh-huh. Um, so yeah, new showrunners every season. So the the quality is hit and miss. But the first season is the one with Julia Roberts. Ooh, fucking fire. Uh, yeah, so those are all visuals uh, on Amazon Prime that we would like you to watch, particularly this these three, One Mississippi, mm-hmm. Catastrophe, and Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. I will be back in a couple of weeks to talk about um, some classic film noirs, uh, but specifically my favorite film noirs of all time. Yep. Um, have you caught any of them yet? Uh, no, I have not, but it's on my list of things to clear before our next recording. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, it's going to be. I, I don't know... It's been a while since I've done film noir. So mm-hmm. I'm I'm trying to see how much film noir I can actually take in a sitting. Uh, right. It should be pretty interesting. Like, I'm a big fan of all, like, many of the modern iterations of film noir. Everything that mm-hmm. has borrowed or pays tribute to and all of that. Big fan yep. of Blade Runner and so on and so forth as we've gone yeah. on and on about. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I'm kind of expired, uh, excited to um, revisit the classics. You know, mm-hmm. just to get a, a a bit more of a feel of where everything kind of came from. Mm. Definitely, yeah. Once you watch these films, you'll see how uh, how much they are, how influential they are in terms of the development of film noir. Um, all the films are picked up from the forties and the fifties, so they are super classic. Yeah, they're from the they're from the dawn of cinema, and then we'll be back, of course, for genre equality, where we'll be talking about. Uh, what are we talking about? I kind of forgot what our main topic was. Oh, Star Wars Visions. Oh, yeah. Coming out soon. Um, I'm very excited for that mix of anime and Star Wars. Um, yeah. The Animatrix of Star Wars, shall we say. Shang-Chi <laughs> and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Yeah. Um, which um, mixed feelings about, for, but I was, it garnered enough goodwill for me to give it a good rating. Yep. Um, what If, uh, which is airing a zombie episode tomorrow. I'm very excited. <laughs> Marvel Zombies is very famous. Yes, it is. Um, Mike Flanagan's new show, Midnight Mass, is, you know, I don't know anything about it i haven't read um i haven't seen trailers there yeah. are trailers but i haven't seen it i don't know what the premise is but mike flanagan sells me on anything <laughs> does. yeah hill house blind manor dr sleep and all that we've, we've talked about that yeah he's had um, a lot of hits. he is one of the best horror people working today adventure time distant lands as his final episodes i'll talk about that we'll talk about my hero academia which mm-hmm. will be ending a season soon I'm going to be talking about how I was very disappointed in the new Candyman. Oh. Uh, and finally, pull this, I'll be talking about, I don't know how I'm going to cram this into five minutes, but I'll be talking about like uh, 20 odd Isaac Asimov books and yeah. I will try to do it as quickly yeah. as I can. Yeah. <laughs> well, if it comes down to it, we can always, you know, um, start that as a kind of like a preamble and then we'll continue it on a whole episode of Behold, just talking about Asimov. <laughs> Mm-hmm. In the future, we do have we do have a fair bit of sci-fi stuff coming up for us as well, so why not, right? Yes, yes, of course, you know, and and you can look forward to that. And if you want to know where to find us, we are on 
YouTube at the Genre and Equality channel. We are on Mixcloud, Spotify, Apple TV. Uh, not Apple TV, sorry. Apple Book Podcast, yep. Google Google Podcasts, etc. Wherever you find your, your podcast, we will be there. Uh, also, you know, our friend Chris Falk recently released the first episode of um, Asian Nightmares, right? That's yep. the title. Yep. Um, which is uh, the first episode of The Water Corridor. It's an audio drama, fictional audio drama. That's about uh, horror stories in Southeast Asia. Um, our friend Chris Falk is a playwright and a screenwriter. And this is his first foray into audio drama. So you should definitely check that out. You can find that on our Bandcamp. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's uh, genreequalitychannel.bandcamp.com. Uh, yeah. And as well as Spotify, you can find him on, you know, same same platforms that you can find on uh, either Behold or Genre Equality as well. Yes, definitely. Just search for Asian Nightmares or for The Water Corridor, which is the title of this episode. And the second episode will be coming out soon in a couple of months, right? Uh, yeah, we. Um, I, I think we're supposed to sync out with Halloween and all of that. We'll probably get Chris on um, another episode of Behold, probably the Halloween mm-hmm. one, to just kind of talk to us about you know the writing process and inspiration and all of that and why he wanted to start that uh, uh, Asian Nightmares in general. Awesome. Yes, you know. Um, till then, guys. Uh, check us out on all the podcast platforms that we just talked about. I've been Hitzer. I'm Isa. Goodbye. Ciao. Yeah.